Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 57, Jennifer Hunt, The Cost of Character. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Jennifer Hunt. Jen is associate professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Kentucky, where she is also affiliated with psychology and the law school. She is also associate editor of the journal Law and Human Behavior. In her research, Jen investigates lay people's judgments in legal contexts, in particular, racial bias in juror decision-making and the juror's use of complex evidence. Our podcast today features Jen's new article, The Cost of Character, which was published in the University of Florida Journal of Law and Public Policy. In it, Jen examines Rule 404A2A, the rule that allows criminal defendants to offer a character witness to testify about the defendant's good character. This is, of course, an exception to the usual rule against character evidence, and it's generally viewed to be a special solicitude given to the criminal defendant. But is it really? While criminal defendants may open this character inquiry, should they? Especially when the prosecution can be expected to impeach the character witness with the defendant's prior bad acts? The answer, of course, is an empirical one. Do jurors actually use the prior bad acts for the narrow technical purpose for which they are permitted, which is to test the character witness's knowledge, and not as evidence of the defendant's bad character? I think most of us highly doubt it. And given this leakage, does opening the character door do more harm than good? Jen investigates. Jen, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin at the beginning. Your article deals with Rule 404A2A, which is the exception that allows criminal defendants to offer character evidence about themselves. Can you review with us exactly how that exception works? Well, so under Rule 404A2A, Defendants in a criminal trial can present testimony about character traits or dispositions that are considered to be pertinent to a particular crime. So, for example, if you're accused of embezzlement, you could have somebody testify about your honesty and integrity. Or if you're accused of assault, you could have someone testify about how gentle and peaceful you are. And the idea here is to provide criminal defendants with the opportunity to enhance their defense because they simply don't have the evidentiary power that the state does. A little bit more on the mechanics. So the defendant can offer character evidence about themselves, but then what happens with the prosecution and what's the back and forth here? Well, so that takes us into Rule 405A, which says that the defense can have a character witness come and provide testimony about these pertinent traits, but they're restricted to testifying in the form of general opinions about the defendant or talking about the defendant's reputation in a relevant community. So it's very general, very broad sort of testimony about what the defendant is like. 
However, 405A says that if a defendant chooses to introduce this kind of character evidence, then the prosecution can cross-examine it. And in contrast to what the defense can do, the prosecution can cross-examine character evidence by asking about specific negative actions that they have good faith to believe that the defendant engaged in. So, for example, if you testify about your great integrity and honesty, then the prosecution can come back and ask if they believe that they have good faith for this about negative acts in which maybe a defendant has allegedly stolen something. And so you get very unequal evidence, very broad, general, positive character evidence, but the cross-examination can include specific, highly negative actions that the defendant allegedly committed. Now, here's the little twist on that. The usual practice, and it's largely attributed to Mickelson v. United States, says that when the prosecution offers these specific acts, those specific acts can only be used to test the character witness's knowledge, the character witness being the person who is describing the defendant in a positive light, it's only used to test that character witness's knowledge of the defendant's character. And normally, most of us think that that's slicing the baloney thin, but as a matter of technical evidence law, there's a very limited purpose for those specific acts that are being introduced. Exactly. So jurors are given a very difficult task. Right? They're told that they can have character evidence in order to get a sense of who the defendant is as a person and specifically to consider whether the type of person that a defendant is raises reasonable doubt about whether they would commit the particular act in question. Then they're given cross-examination. And the cross-examination is not supposed to be used to evaluate the defendant at all. Instead, it's supposed to be used to judge the character witness and to decide, do they really know the defendant? And if they do, are they a good judge of character? So they're getting what seems like the same piece of information, the direct and the cross-examination of the same witness, but they're supposed to use the different halves for entirely different purposes, which is a very difficult task, not just to understand, but also to do. Now let's get to the meat of your article. Conventionally, 404A2, this ability of the defendant to offer character witness about themselves, 404A2 is thought to be something of a special dispensation that's given to criminal defendants, that because criminal defendants are on trial for their lives, we're going to give them the ability to introduce character evidence, even though normally we don't allow this kind of evidence in court. You, in the article, question whether it really is an advantage to the defendant. Why? Well, you're right. This is seen as being a special privilege for criminal defendants. But the problem is, is that it's structured in a way that actually favors the prosecution. And so I argue in the paper that by introducing character evidence, many criminal defendants are essentially handing a loaded gun to the prosecution. And the reason why is this ability to cross-examine character witnesses, that most people, not just criminal defendants, most people have some negative, unsavory acts in their background. And by introducing character evidence, you give the prosecution the ability to ask questions about those. And in many cases, the kinds of questions that a prosecutor might ask on cross-examination would cover acts that wouldn't be admissible in any other way. 
And so there's an expression that is by introducing character evidence, you open the door to this negative information to go before the jury who then may misuse it to judge the defendant. There are a couple of pieces to this, though. So the first piece I think I hear you saying is that the jury may misuse, meaning they're not going to use the negative acts for that testing purpose that we talked about. It's just too fine a distinction for anyone to keep in their head. But then I also recall a different reason, that it's actually even worse than that. Your article talks about how positive character traits often don't have a lot of effect on how a jury judges the defendant, whereas negative character traits might have an outsized effect. Absolutely. If you think about character information from a psychological perspective, there are two key differences between what the defense and what the prosecution is allowed to bring in through character evidence. One of these differences is valence, that negative information has far more of a psychological impact than positive information. And in fact, some scholars think that we have evolved to have this sensitivity um, because negative information signifies danger. And so we're highly attuned to it. Hearing negative information has a very strong psychological punch, whereas positive information is kind of what we expect in general. So it often doesn't have that big of an impact. The second issue is specificity. So as I mentioned earlier, the defense is allowed to bring in reputation or opinion testimony that has to be very broad at the level of saying this is a really honest person or everyone in the community thinks the defendant is kind. And this kind of general information doesn't have that much of an impact. On the other hand, highly specific information, particularly in the context of trials, has a much stronger impact. And so when we put this together, what we can see is that the prosecution can talk about specific negative acts, which has a double psychological impact compared to the positive general evidence that the defense can bring in. So the prosecution just has a far stronger ability to influence the jury. Now, if the jury was going to use this as intended, it wouldn't be a big deal because then we would just essentially be back to square zero. They would conclude, oh, this character witness doesn't know the defendant, so I should ignore them, or they're not a very good judge of character, and it should just negate it out. But because jurors misuse it, then this really strong negative information can have a very powerful impact on their impressions of the defendant, making them think the defendant is a bad person. And my research shows that it can actually increase guilt and conviction judgments. Now, I suppose that one rejoinder to your complaint is that it's the defendant's choice, that if the defendant has these skeletons in the closet, then the defendant simply shouldn't use the special dispensation because it's not really a special dispensation. But I think what you're saying here is that defense attorneys might not quite understand just how badly things can go. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of 
defense attorneys are savvy to the idea that, you know, if, if there are bad things in your client's background, then maybe character evidence isn't the best strategy. Although even then, I think it has a lot of intuitive appeal. But the idea that this cross-examination is likely to be far more impactful than the general testimony, I think is something that attorneys don't often appreciate. There seems to be one additional argument that I read from your article, which is that the use of this character might also be bad, not just for defendants, but for the legal system as a whole. And that is because of the effect of stereotypes and the effect of stereotypes. The research suggests that jurors will tend to overweigh stereotype consistent material and not stereotype inconsistent material. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one argument for the imbalance in character evidence is, okay, just don't use it. But I do think that that's short-sighted. It certainly fixes the problem at the individual level. But the fact is, the federal rules of evidence create this exception for a reason, which is that Criminal defendants' liberty is at stake, and sometimes they need some extra power to bring in evidence. And in fact, the advisory committee characterizes this as being almost constitutional in nature. So I don't think we just want to write it off. And in particular, I did some research with Evelyn Mader that suggested that because jurors come into trials with the same stereotypes that we see in the broader society, positive character evidence may have a stronger impact on African-American defendants who often come in with the weight of the stereotypes about criminality that are associated with African-Americans in our society. So if jurors come in and they expect defendants to have stereotype-consistent traits, then hearing positive character evidence about minority defendants could be beneficial at reducing some of the racial bias that unfortunately does affect jurors' judgments of these defendants. So I think both at the broad level and with specific reference to race, it's important to think about how we can fix the system of character evidence as opposed to just saying, don't do it. Let me move to the second half of the article where you spend a lot of time on jury instructions, the way that the law often tries to cabin the misuse of evidence is through these instructions. What did you find regarding jury instructions on character evidence? So I did an analysis of pattern instructions for Every state that has them, which is 47, the District of Columbia and the nine federal circuits that have them. And what I found is that many of these jurisdictions don't provide any pattern instructions for character evidence at all. About half of the states and three quarters of the federal circuits provide them for the use of positive character evidence. And only about 20 percent of both states and federal circuits provide instructions for cross-examination. And this is a real problem because the use of cross-examination is highly counterintuitive. You can't expect a juror to come in and to just divine, oh, I'm supposed to use this positive character evidence to evaluate the defendant and think about reasonable doubt, but use the cross-examination just to evaluate the knowledge and the judgment of the character witness. But if we don't provide them with jury instructions, 
how are they supposed to know differently? So one big issue is availability of these instructions. Another issue is their content and their quality. And what I found was among the jurisdictions that do provide pattern instructions, both the content and the quality were highly variable. There were some really good instructions that provided enough information that a juror could, if they understood the instructions, properly use character evidence. But a lot of the instructions were simply bare bones. They were hardly better than getting no instruction at all. And then we place jurors back in this situation where they're trying to use this counterintuitive information without adequate guidance. So I want to push on this lack of jury instruction problem. Is it really true that if we provide the jury instructions, and I understand that typically we don't, particularly in the negative context, but even if we did, would jurors really be able to engage in the mental gymnastics that we're asking them to do? In other words, does it really matter whether we give them these instructions or not? Well, if we don't give them instructions, then we have no hope. So at that level, I would absolutely argue that we should. But to push a little further on that, I think that we need to think not only do instructions exist, but how good are they? Are they written in a manner in which the average juror could understand? Do they give information about all of the key elements of their use according to the federal rules. And my analysis suggested no, that these instructions tended to be written at at least a college reading level, whereas the recommendation would be more seventh, eighth grade level. And again, a lot of them were missing key information. In addition to that, I think we also need to think about when and how we give jurors these instructions. So for example, psychological research shows that people often struggle to inhibit information or to correct um, judgments that they believe may have been tainted by some kind of impermissible influence. So that suggests that telling jurors at the end of the trial, oh, by the way, you're not supposed to do this with cross-examination, is likely to be highly ineffective. But if we're trying to think, how can we improve the system? What we might be able to do would be to give the instruction for how to use cross-examination of character evidence right before cross-examination occurs. If you do that, and you do that clearly and well, then jurors may not have impermissible inferences that then need to be corrected later. So I think that jury instructions they have many, many limitations. But if we think creatively about how to improve the content, the way they're communicated, and where we put them and how, then they do have some potential to make a difference. That's super helpful. I think that this point about putting these instructions beforehand, effectively priming the jury before they get the evidence, uh, is a really good one. Let me take this in a different direction. If this is a very difficult thing for jurors to do in the first place, and we don't tell them about it. Does this really suggest that the evidentiary framework or the evidentiary system is effectively sanctioning the use of the cross-examination's specific acts for the character purpose? In practice, what we're doing is saying to the defendants, Look, you can open this door, but if you open the door, really, the prosecution can attack you on your character? I think so. I mean, our message right now is kind of buyer beware. 
and the beware needs to be much stronger than it currently is. But, you know, if you look beyond the good character exception, right, you can see all sorts of ways in which the general 404A prohibition against using character to prove conduct has been eroded over the years. You see it in 404B2, where you can introduce character for ostensibly non-character purposes, but everybody pretty much knows that jurors are making character inferences from that information. You see it in other places as well. So I do think that there is kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge quality of how we have the system of character evidence and how prosecutors use it. And in fact, some scholars suggest that there may be unscrupulous prosecutors who really try to milk this to bring in information that maybe lacks something of good faith, that maybe primes racial stereotypes, or tries to engage jurors in other impermissible and damaging inferences. Let me try to bring this all together. We've talked a lot about all the different aspects of this 404A2 rule. If you were advising a defense attorney about the use of 404A2 type evidence, what would you say? What would be the general guidelines on when and when not to use it? Honestly, the way it is now, my advice to attorneys is always don't do it. I think that it may be helpful for particular defendants in limited situations, but the risk is just too great. And sometimes that risk is just not knowable in advance. And then you get to a situation where something comes up in cross-examination that you really can't undo. So I think at the individual level, it's just too big of a risk. What I do in the latter part of my article is to think about ways in which we might be able to improve the structure of our system for character evidence. And I consider some potential alternatives to think if we might be able to fix things so that then there would be benefits to introducing good character evidence. Final question for you. Mm -hmm. What's next? Are you planning some additional research in this area? Well, so one thing that I would really like to do, as I was saying, I suggest some potential solutions. So, for example, scaling back cross-examination in order to focus directly on the character witness's knowledge as opposed to their knowledge of specific bad acts. Um, I also propose using a character statement in which a defendant is allowed to introduce a statement about himself or herself, kind of similar to an allocution. And I'd like to do some studies to see whether those are effective and whether they get away from some of the risks of the current system. I also think that it is important to do more work on the psychological processes by which character evidence affects jurors. A lot of my work has focused on cognitive judgments, how we think about these traits and the inferences we make. But I think that there's a big role for emotion as well, particularly if you hear about a negative act that raises negative emotions. Oh, somebody stole from a charity? You know, that's not just a cognitive reaction. That's also an emotional reaction. 
And then finally, I think, you know, I showed in some of the research I discussed in the article that the impact of character evidence varies by the race of the defendant. I'm interested to see what some of the other moderators are. Under what context does character evidence, both positive and negative, have a stronger or a weaker impact on jurors? Well, Jen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about this important aspect of the character evidence rules. Great having you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. To all the criminal defense attorneys out there, Jen offers a rather stunning recommendation. Don't open the door to the defendant's character. The recommendation is not to balance costs and benefits or to even be more careful. The message is simply just say no. Jen's strong stance is built on much more than just the conventional wisdom that juries don't understand the Mickelson distinction and therefore might misuse the specific act evidence offered against defendants. First, Jen finds that in many jurisdictions, jurors aren't even told about the Mickelson distinction. Obviously, if they don't know about it, there's no way that they can apply it. And even if they receive the jury instruction, it must be given pre-exposure, meaning before cross-examination, and in an understandable language. Second, Jen raises the valence problem. Negative character simply sticks in the mind, and I'd argue common experience bears this out. Hearing platitudes about someone typically generates a collective yawn. But dirt? Well, that's a whole nother story. All this said, Jen's ultimate position on character evidence is a rather nuanced one. While she rejects a defendant's use of 404A2 in its present form, she's not against the use of the defendant's character evidence as a general matter. As she mentioned, character evidence might be an important way of combating stereotypes, but presumably only if the potential negative downside is appropriately cabined. For more empirical data on how we might structure Rule 404A2 differently, We'll have to wait and see what happens with Jen's research. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>